I feel super nervous. That's alright. Okay. Like, right. pretend we're in the pub. We are in the pub. Well, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna add like some pub ambience. Oh, cool. It's nice. <laughs> gonna be like clinking glasses. Could and... be a fight. Yes. There may yet be a fight. Hi, welcome to Why Are Computers, a podcast that attempts to answer that question by talking to people who reckon stuff about computers and hoping they accidentally say the answer. I'm Tom Stewart. This is episode one, the shambolic pilot episode. If we get picked up for a full series, then I'll be recast, and my parts of this episode will be redubbed by someone with a mellifluous voice and appealing personality. I'm joined today by James Coughlin. Hi, James. Hi, Tom. Who are you? I'm James. I do Ruby and JavaScript stuff. Um... I work on an open source project called Fay, among other things. I sort of poodle about London with a laptop. Right. <laughs> Doing stuff like this. Yeah. Going to, going into pubs. Um, uh, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today is that, um, like like most programmers, I think, you are occasionally angry about <laughs> things, uh, specifically angry about like the state of... Uh, software, how bad most software is, um, and probably like most programmers, you think you can do better than most of the bad software that's out there. But what's unusual about you, it seems to me, is that unlike most programmers, you actually do something about it, and that when you get sufficiently annoyed about something, you will actually spend the time to write some more software, some new software, that's notionally an improvement on the software that currently exists. It's you... called not helping. Right, well, possibly, <laughs> but it's, it strikes me as quite a, quite a positive anger management strategy. You can kind of channel your frustration into the into the medium of software rather than the medium of like tweets and blog posts, right? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Uh, sometimes that leads me down a, a, a incredibly silly uh, alleyways where it turns out I have no idea what I'm talking about. Right. But um, one of the nice side effects of uh, ranting about stuff on the internet is that occasionally people who know more than you come along and, and correct you and explain why you have no idea what you're talking about, and then you learn things. Um, so that's quite nice. Right. I was thinking the other day about what we could speak about, and I was thinking about um, capybara, and mm. like so. This is what this is like. One of my probably one of my favorite Ruby libraries for for anyone who isn't already familiar with it. Capybara is like a browser automation library for Ruby. Um, it gives you like a nice Ruby DSL for controlling a web browser effectively. You can say, go to this URL and click on this link and fill in this form and press this button, and it will. And and it has a kind of a pluggable driver architecture that allows you to. Uh, implement that DSL against something that looks like a web browser and that might be, so there's like a rack test driver for it that just pretends to be a web browser just talking the, the rack interface directly to your rack application if it's written in Ruby or there's like a mechanized driver that actually makes HTTP requests and there's an HTML unit driver and all the way up to uh, Poltergeist which is a driver for PhantomJS and then Selenium and th things that can drive real web browsers like Firefox and, and Chrome and stuff like that and you uh, wrote a capybara driver called Terminus, right? Yes. What, what's the? I wanted to. I wanted to kind of pick at that a little bit. Firstly, what is Terminus and why is Terminus? As like a, <laughs> as a, this is like a, 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 a restriction of the why our computers question is what is Terminus? And then secondly, like, can you tell me a bit of the story about like all of the other software that this project generated? Because it seemed kind of amazing to me. Um, yeah, it ended up being quite silly. <laughs> so um, about. 
for yeah, um, two thousand nine, um, I had uh, one of my sort of frustration triggered silly ideas, um, uh, which is that I wanted to be uh, I wanted to be able to test um, test web apps that had JavaScript on them. Right. Um, which was still like at that time. Um, there weren't an awful lot of really good ideas about how to do that. Um, the whole JavaScript unit testing thing um, was sort of in its infancy a little bit. Um, there, were, there were tools for doing that, but they weren't as sort of widely used as they are today. Um, and yeah, so I had this this kind of silly notion that it'd be, be really great if you could, if it was as easy to test web pages with JavaScript on them as it is to test those uh Without, because right. yeah, the way you've just described uh, Capybara and the tool that preceded it in Ruby called WebRat, um, they uh, because web pages are nice and machine readable, you can just have a, a client sort of interact with your website as a black box and script it, and um, and write tests that way, and it's really cool. Um, but uh, JavaScript's a bit more tricky, and in particular, before. Um, before really PhantomJS came along, um, all your options for doing um, JavaScript testing really involved like fake browsers. Right. So you had MJS for Rhino. There was uh, HTML Unit, which is a Java um, fake browser, and all these things are basically um, software libraries that give you an, an interface that's like a web browser but don't have a GUI. They just behave like a web browser but don't draw anything on the screen. So you can still script them and interact with them and check things. Um, they just don't paint anything. So that means you can use them from the command line and put them in a continuous integration process and all that kind of thing. Um, but um, the thing about web browsers is that they're all really different and they all have bugs. So fake browsers are not really, at least in my experience, all that useful because um, they've tended to be a bad approximation of the real thing. Um, so even in the unlikely situation that your fake browser is actually a 100% faithful representation of the underlying specifications, it's still not necessarily going to tell you, give you very much confidence that it's gonna that your web app is going to work right in Firefox or whatever. Oh, well, sure, right. So... Um, yeah, to, to sort of cut a, a, a longer story short, if you're using a fake browser, you're really just testing on one more browser target that right. is not like the other browser targets. And, um, yeah, I got frustrated with trying various of those. I always found it really easy to find fairly show-stopping bugs in them, um, like things that do work in browsers that just totally crash the test system. Um, so that was kind of annoying. And uh, what I really wanted, wanted to be able to do is have um, so if you if you're doing unit testing in JavaScript, you just have a web page with some script on it, and you load it into a browser, and you can see if the tests pass. And you can do that in any browser because it's just a web page, and you load it somewhere and have a look at it. Um, but you couldn't really do that for full stack stuff very easily because you know you either had to uh, you had to be using that Selenium would support or you'd be using one of these fake drivers which wouldn't tell you really anything useful about your cross-platform support. Um, so what I wanted to do was make it so that it was really easy to test full-stack stuff on any target browser, any browser, any device, anywhere, um, on 
uh, like mobile phones, remote machines, uh, anything like that, and without needing any plugins. So you know you wouldn't have to get Selenium hooked into your phone somehow. You could just uh, point your phone at some web page, and it would let you control the phone and navigate around your website. So that's sort of what Terminus was. I'm not sure if it was a Capybara driver originally, because I'm not quite sure how the timing of that played out. But um, at some point fairly in its early in its life, it became obvious that it should be a Capybara driver, um, right? So that you can use the same Capybara testing API. Just swap the back end out, and all your tests can still run against this other thing. Right. Um, and that's really nice. Capybara is a really nice system that uh, it's. Um, I wouldn't say it's easy to do a backend for it, but the contract between Capybara and its backends is quite cleanly separated. It's quite a like sensible um, API contract between Capybara and its driver plugins. So it's sort of easy to understand what you need to do. Right. Uh, doesn't imply that actually doing that backend is 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 easy, but the um, the the architecture is sens- is fairly sensible. So um, fu- fundamentally, what you were going for here, um, just to make sure I understand it correctly, is that effectively what you ended up do- what you ended up doing with Terminus, or at least trying to do, was to kind of implement a. Whereas most, whereas all of the implementations of existing drivers will be to do with either having a FACO browser, or in the case of something like Selenium, it's using um, using sort of browser specific extension APIs to sort of you you have to install a plugin or something inside the browser to get it to be remote controllable. The right. thing, your, your idea with Terminus, I think, was to say, could we do all of this just with JavaScript? Could we kind of yeah. build? You know, do all of the stuff to do with changing the location of the browser and clicking on links and all of that stuff, just kind of in browser with JavaScript, and then presumably, I don't know at what point you knew how you were going to do this, perhaps some kind of uh, two-way channel of communication from the browser back to like the terminus process, so that when you're running your acceptance test locally, your you know the, your in-process acceptance test stuff can like speak to the JavaScript that's in the browser and get it to click on the links and fill in the forms and stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's more sort of controlling the browser from inside the web page rather than controlling it from outside with a with a plugin or some kind of other harness system. Right. Well, that seems like a really like a super useful idea, and I'm glad you did that. However, I gather that you had at least two problems, and it's and <laughs> <laughs> um, oh boy, the two problems that I know about are number one, you wanted to have that bidirectional communication with the server. Um, and problem number two was that I think the Capybara, the, the driver integration API that you just mentioned, is done in terms of XPath, right? Yeah. And so when you when you use the Capybara DSL and you say, I want to click on a link or I want to press a button, ultimately the information about what link and what button to, to click on or press is communicated by sending strings of XPath up to the client. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So why were those two things problems and, and what did you do about it? <laughs> What terrible thing! <laughs> uh, well, the fact that we're now talking about this and it's four years later gives some indication of the scope creep <laughs> involved. Um, You're still working on all of the software that fell out of this, right? Um, yeah, most of it, yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> God. It seems it seems like a totally plausible <laughs> thing to to do. Yeah, it's this sort of it's a, uh, it's a fairly deep yak shave. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Capybara lets you, um, in its front-end API, it lets you um, 
pick elements out of the page to interact with with CSS or XPath. Right. But if you use CSS, it converts it into XPath so that basically so that the um, the contract with the driver is simpler. There's only one language that the driver has to understand. Right. Um, and also XPath can do things that CSS can't. So if you're going to compile one to the other, um, CSS to XPath is the one that makes sense because CSS, if you compile XPath to CSS, there are some XPath things that you won't be able to trans uh, convert in that way. Right. So yeah, the first thing is Capybara will give your driver XPath and you have to deal with that, which is fine because most, uh, most browsers have a uh, function called document.evaluate which is it's sort of clunky, um, but what it does is it runs XPath queries against the page, and then gives you an iterator that gives you all the nodes that that, that match the thing. Um, the other thing was, uh, like you say, the, the, your your um, test program, which is written in Ruby, needs to be able to tell the browser to do stuff. So you have to send commands to the browser and then find out what happened. So you can tell the browser to do stuff, and you can ask the browser things like how many elements match this selector, uh, what's the current URL, all that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, you need bidirectional uh, communication. Um, so uh, the, uh, the, the, the second of, of those things, the uh, communication problem, is basically why I started Fay. Um, and at the time, uh, we didn't have WebSocket yet. That was still sort of on the horizon. And I was looking around about, okay, how, how do you do this? And I'd heard about this thing called Comet, which is a uh, uh, sort of umbrella term for a bunch of hacks that people use to do uh, two-way communication for browsers. Um, and so I looked into that, and then I found out about this uh, sort of open protocol for doing that called Bio, which there's a bunch of implementations for, um, but there wasn't a Ruby one. Um, and uh, what I really should have done is used one of the existing ones for Java or whatever and written a Ruby client for that. Um, that would have made a lot of sense. It would have made a lot of sense. And um, my life would be quite different now if I'd done that. <laughs> that's, that's, that was probably bad software, though. If you looked at the Java no, clients, it was probably unacceptable. No, it's pretty good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I thought, okay, I'll, 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 do a, I'll do a Ruby implementation of this bio protocol. Right. And um, so I did a, a server and a, uh, a Ruby server and a JavaScript client for it. And that meant that um, basically what that protocol gives you is it gives you pub-sub semantic messaging um, between uh, uh, between web clients, so it means that um, you have a, a central hub, and then clients can connect to that, and they can exchange messages via PubSub. Um, and this was all sitting on at the time. This was sitting on top of uh, like long polling and like with like various exactly. strategies for kind of for faking out bidirectional communication over HTTP, right? Yeah. So pre WebSockets, you did stuff like um, the client would send a request and then the server would just not respond to it for ages until it got a message. Right. And then it would send the response with that message in it and then when the client got that it would just immediately open another request. Um, but the intention being that this that that buyer kind of abstracts away the, the details of the underlying transport and that in principle yeah. you might be able to replace that transport with, you know, if if your browser suddenly had an API that allowed you to just open a TCP socket, then you would still be able to sit buyer on top of that, right? Exactly. So like uh, Bio has um 
like it's part it's within the scope of bio that it defines a transport negotiation system where right the client can say what it uh, can do and the server says what it can do and somehow they agree on what type of network transport to use um so yeah that meant that when the web sockets came along they could be sort of transparently integrated into that so yeah it totally hides the network uh all the messiness of browser networking from you which is which is quite nice um so yeah so i sort of looked at that and started hacking a, a, a server for it and um, sort of used that for a music hack day project to put iTunes in your browser that was sort of fun. Um, it would let you play songs and then they'd be... Uh, um, it would make them play at the same time on other people's machines so you could have a sort of listening party thing. Right. Um, so that was quite neat. Uh, but that then I sort of... Um, it was a sort of just a, a little just good enough implementation and then I sort of put it away for um, for six months. And this was still... Uh, I haven't even started working on Terminus at this point. This is still just like, what do I even <laughs> need... What technology do I need to even make that possible? And this is still pre-WebSockets, right? Yeah. Right. So this is sort of mid to late 2009. Okay. Um, and in 2010... Um, this is when like node started getting off the ground it's like node point one um still like quite early and um well very early and uh a little unstable but like it was usable and so one weekend i thought i'll i'll try this out and i'll i'll uh i'll port this fey thing to it which i hadn't really announced or released it uh, anything it was because it was you know not really production quality software right um so yeah, I ported it to I ported the server from Ruby to to Node to sort of learn what this Node thing was all about. And um, in Ruby, I'd been using Event Machine to do this. So it's a very similar architecture in Node. It's all sort of asynchronous network stuff. Um, and so that was a fairly easy translation. Um, and then once once I'd done the the sort of Node version, I sort of started. Um, like it started looking like a like a real project, um, just because of the sort of you know you revisit revisit a project and change stuff and improve it and uh, update it to make it work with whatever's current now, and yeah, it started sort of looking like a real thing, or I started thinking of it as just not just a weekend music hack day um, thing. I was like, oh, this is a thing now, right? Um, so yeah, then over the sort of first half of, of 2010, that was sort of a lot of the, um, most of the, the, the early work that that turned it into a project, like went through several release cycles, put a website up for it, said, like I announced it and said, hey, there's this, this thing I'm working on and it started getting users. And at this point, you're still, you still haven't actually written Terminus. No. Right. <laughs> but, um, but it, like, it did let me start working on Terminus. Right. Um, so, yeah, by sort of late late 2010, I had an early version of Terminus that could do the stuff I wanted that um, spoke to uh, to Capybara um, and, yeah, would drive most of the the uh, the sort of standard Z browsers and okay. would do a little bit of uh, of iPhone at a at a push. Right. Um, and so it was it was showing a little bit of promise. Um, but it's still nowhere near a sort of terminus. Is still nowhere near a bit of being a, any sort of a reasonable product. It was like a demo at this point. 
Um, so yeah, that takes you to like, like, like year year the first eighteen months, right? Of of this ridiculous project. It sounds like in principle you could be close to being finished here. You've got a, you've got a demo working. Surely, well, surely just polish it up and round the edges off, and you've got yourself a product. Yeah, just just ship it. <laughs> yeah, put a, a squirrel on a hat, and it's, it's <laughs> yeah. done. Um, yeah. So web browsers. Um, the other fun thing about web browsers um, is that uh, one of them is really not very good. <laughs> so. Actually, two of them in this particular instance aren't very good. So, uh, Internet Explorer and the Android browser um, don't have this document.evaluate function that does XPath for oh you. I was like, oh, that's kind of a deal breaker because that's the big thing that's a problem for cross-browser testing. The thing is, is like most that you most want to target doesn't have this feature that Capybara needs in order to work. Um, so. I spent ages looking around, and there are various sort of ex-party things um, that do, like, if you've got a document fragment from an XHR request, you can do XPath on that. You can do, if you're doing XHTML, you can do XPath on some bits of that, sort of. But there was no, like, direct, um, what people later started calling polyfills. Right. There wasn't a polyfill for document.evaluate. Um I couldn't find anything that was even close enough that would just let you go query the page. It was like either query a document fragment or query an XHR response or, or you know, they just didn't implement all of XPath or they were just buggy or whatever it was. Right. And I really tried to find something because I really didn't want to write an XPath engine <laughs> for fairly obvious reasons. Um, it would probably turn into a massive yak shave. Right. Um, so, uh, but no, I like I ran out of steam on that search. So, I okay. Well, if this is gonna work at all, it needs to have an XPath thing. Um, so I just had to bite the bullet and and, <laughs> and write one, um, of course. But um, so XPath is um, if you haven't used it much, it's sort of it's a. Uh, sort of similar to CSS selectors in what it does. It lets you query a uh, an HTML or XML document um, using a selector language. And um, uh, it has a slightly different syntax from CSS, and it also has some features that aren't in CSS. It's got various functions in it that, uh, in particular, lets you query uh, the text of things and their attributes in ways that CSS doesn't let you do. Um, and uh, the really neat thing about it is that XPath expressions can be sort of nested inside each other. So you can say, like, select all the divs that contain anything matching this other selector. Um, so it's sort of recursive in a way that CSS selectors uh, aren't. So um, that means that parsing it is kind of hairy. And I really didn't have any experience of writing parsers at this point, and it sort of looked really intimidating to try and parse this uh, actually fairly complex language um, by handwriting code. I just knew I'd make loads of loads of mistakes, and it would take forever to get right. Um, but um, what I what I had done is that I uh, previously used this uh, Ruby library called Treetop for doing. 
um, I'd sort of played around with with doing some sort of uh, Lisp clone stuff in Ruby a while ago. Um, so I played around a bit with Treetop. I knew that you could uh, you could use uh, something like Treetop to parse something like uh, XPath. Um, so Treetop is a is a Ruby thing where it lets you write a sort of declarative grammar for a language and it generates parser code for it. Um, and um, there is a library for JavaScript that does the same thing. It's called PegJS. Great. Yeah, job done. <laughs> Except I'm a total idiot. <laughs> and I'm very, very fussy. And uh, like seriously, PegJS is really good. Um, I just had some very, very minor quibbles about its syntax and about exactly how it generated stuff, which are really, really minor quibbles. Like, this is not even a criticism. It's just me being a pedant. Right. Um, and I was also just sort of curious about how this how this stuff worked. It's like because I'd um, played around with doing Lisp interpreters before. I thought like, oh, this sort of the next stage down of that of like, oh, how do you do parsers? So I'd been interested in language implementation for a while, and it's, this seemed like a good opportunity to learn some more about that. So yeah, I thought, well, how hard can it be? I'll just write a parser generator myself to to do this XPath thing. And yeah, that was sort of scary but not as difficult as I first thought um, I sort of bootstrapped it by inventing this sort of JSON format for doing the the grammar so I didn't have to parse a new syntax language right um, so yeah invented some some JSON representation for for saying how the language worked and then turned that into um, what are called parser combinators which are just functions um, like you can make a function that matches a string or a function that matches um, something one or more times, or like all the sort of things that you see in regexes. Those all those concepts can be turned into functions that just do that thing, and then you can uh, compose them. And those are called parser combinators. So I wrote a fairly simple thing to turn this um, this JSON format into combinators, um, but it's really really slow uh, because making all these functions and calling them has quite a high overhead in JavaScript. Uh, it's the sort. It's the easiest way to do it because you don't have to do code generation really. Um, so it's not like doing a full-on parser generator, but it's not very performant. Um, so, and in particular, like you're sending code over a long polling thing to Internet Explorer six, um, and then asking it to parse this query and then execute it against the DOM. There's already loads of stuff that's going to be very slow. So um, yeah, the performance of this thing was just unacceptable. Right. So uh, yeah, I decided I needed to do like the next thing and make it uh, faster, which meant I had to do code generation, um, which is sort of once you've done the com the combinator stuff, you can sort of see how you would generate code to do the same thing. I had some help. I just went and looked at the code that Treetop and PegJS generate to see like what sort of thing they're doing. Like, oh, it turns every rule into a method. Okay, and it turns a one or more selector into like a while loop with a counter, and a, you can sort of see what's going on. The code that these things generate is very verbose, um, but if you, um, if you just play around with writing a grammar and changing it and seeing how that changes the, the compiled output, you can kind of get a feel for how it works. So, um, yeah, so I sort of went, went through that process up to the point where um, it was powerful enough that I could write uh, 
a new um, instead of doing the sort of JSON format for the for the grammar, I could do an actual grammar syntax format, uh, and uh, then uh, and then compile that into code that parses the same format. So it became like self-hosting. Right. Uh, so yeah, somewhere in that that project, there is a file that describes its own syntax, which still sort of does my head in quite a lot and work it once you've bootstrapped it working on it becomes really complicated because you've got you have to use the previous version of the thing to compile the next version of the thing and then if you get it wrong you then have no working files anymore right um, so that's that's kind of fun uh so yeah all that sort of ended up being uh, a project called canopy which i released as open source um it's sort of i think it's probably just me that uses it but uh it's kind of a fun learning experience. One of those things that I didn't didn't do because I thought loads of people needed it. I just did it because I wanted to learn how to do it and how to test it and all that sort of thing. Right. Um, but that was a pretty big diversion. That sort of took... I was working on that on and off between 20, 2010 and 2012, um, just sort of coming back to it. You know, it was originally a Rhino script and then I turned it into a Node thing. Um and this is just getting you to the point where you can parse an XPath expression, right? Yeah. You still had to deal with the problem of actually like evaluating XPath. Right. Would, did that turn out to be straightforward in comparison to parsing the expressions in the first place? Um, less work. Right. Um, I yeah. don't really know how XPath worked at the time, but like it's not it's not very complicated to understand. It's got some. If all you know is CSS, it's got some slightly funky semantics because it can do like parent selection and has this concept called axes, which are sort of strategies for walking the DOM. Like you can say like an access expresses something like select all the children that match this or include the current node in this or yeah. include all the descendants in this. Yeah. Um, so you have this combination of tag matches and attribute matches and axes and and functions and it's all a bit weird. Um, did you therefore eventually reach a point in time where is it called pathology the XPath implementation? Yeah. Did you reach a point where that was actually a, an acceptable implementation of XPath one that 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 had enough XPath support for the Capybara driver yeah. API? It was sort of yeah. It was just enough to make Capybara work. As in, I just did it by running the Capybara test suite. Right. And adding stuff until it all passed. So it's still so it's, it's not. You did it's build, really you... it's really not complete and it's right. quite slow. Okay. And yeah, it's by no means a complete XPath implementation. It was just a sort of just enough to support the things that people are probably going to use Capybara for. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, that was a kind of weird project. And that, like, I, when I put it on GitHub, um, like I just started the, the GitHub project. And I put the name on it, which is Pathology, and I think the description just said the goggles they do nothing, <laughs> <laughs> and it got followers. Wow. There's no code to say anything that it did. It was just like aroused enough curiosity <laughs> that um that people started watching it, which is very very strange. Wow. So um at this point in the story, does does Terminus exist yet? Yeah, so now it sort of uh is increasingly a real thing because it will run uh you can run it on Internet Explorer and it can just about do Android browser stuff. Right. Um there was still ongoing stuff where, like Capybara was still evolving. Yeah. Um, so I'd sort of periodically do maintenance work to to make it keep working, and you know browsers keep changing, and there's a lot of stuff in Terminus that is just 
quite egregious hacks around like browser differences and um, all the weird sorts of things that that Capybara can do to web pages, um, including stuff like. Um, so Capybara isn't just for testing Ruby stuff. You can point it at any web application and it will work. You can just say, go and talk to this host name. Right. And you can then, you can point it at Facebook or Gmail or whatever. Yeah. Um, Assuming you've got a driver that can make HTTP requests, right? Right. Um, so the thing about Terminus is that it needs to inject this JavaScript thing into whatever page you want to control because it's sort of controlling the page from the inside. So what that meant is that the way that it loads pages is it runs everything through a proxy so it can inject this JavaScript into the page. But it also has to do stuff like, um, in order to make sure that every page gets loaded through a proxy, it has to rewrite all of the links in every page to go through localhost. Right. And it has to rewrite. Like, there's, a, there's a bunch of rewriting, and then there's a bunch of rewriting back in the opposite direction so that Capybara gets the sort of real URL back out when it does stuff. That's all egregious. There's like stuff where it doesn't really deal with um, uh, chunked encoding very nicely. Um, so you have to, um, you know, strip those headers out in the in the request phase so that you get non-chunked encoding text out and everything gets easier. Right. Um, there's just a just piles and piles of of messy nonsense to make it work. But it did work. It did eventually work. Uh, so it's I think sort of at some point in 2012, like a website for Terminus went up with a just little bit of of documentation. Right. And a few people started using it. And then WebSockets happened. Right. Well, like, Web, WebSockets had happened sort of a while ago. That started in 2010. Um, we started getting WebSockets in browsers. Um, so, yeah, some point during, uh, sort of within a, a year of me starting work on Fay, then WebSockets came along and sort of changed everything. Um, and because this was still really early days and there, like, weren't really any good libraries for it, um, I was like, okay, well, I've, I'm going to have to implement this WebSocket protocol thingy. At the start, that was that was pretty easy because the, the 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 handshake format was really you didn't have to do anything. You just you didn't have to uh, do any of the crypto stuff that they added later. It was just like you'd get these headers that told you it was a WebSocket, and you'd send these other headers that said, "Yep, okay, I can do that." And then there was this really uh, uh, simple. Um, message framing format where it would send you a null byte and then a bunch of text and then a 255 byte and that those delimited the message and you would just run through everything you received over TCP and parse that. That sounds brilliant and simple but this was an evolving standard, right? Right. And then, so someone decided that they needed binary support. So previously this was like it's uh it's UTF-8 text delimited by a 0 and a 255 byte. Um and there was a couple of um, there was a couple of versions of that that actually got deployed in browsers that differed a little bit on their um, how the initial headers were done, but that wasn't really a big problem. Um, and then sometime 2011, we started getting the thing that would eventually become the RFC thing that was way more complicated, and it had uh, UTF-8 and binary messages and control frames like uh, ping pong. Uh, explicit closing, the handshake was more complicated. Uh, you had like masking. So there's this thing WebSocket does where all the frames that are sent from the client, in order to stop 
browser-based JavaScript programs for being able to send arbitrary crafted byte sequences to web servers, everything that gets sent from the client has random, random noise applied to it. Right. So a WebSocket frame is these four random bytes. It, there's some headers and then four random bytes that tell you what the noise mask is, and then there's the rest of the message, and you have to XOR those bytes off of the right. message deposit. So there was... I, it's one of those things where I really didn't know what I was getting into with doing this project because, like, oh, I'll just I'll just do this messaging thing for browsers. Oh, that seems to work. And then people are like, it should reuse WebSocket because that's a better solution to this. I'm like, yeah, well, it is. Okay, I'll do that. And then people keep, you know, putting out new versions of this, this WebSocket thing, yeah. and you never knew when they were uh, coming along exactly or when they'd show up in browsers. Um. So I just had to sort of keep up with it. So sort of 2011 had several uh, um, sort of panic panic weeks where a new version of Chrome came out and now Faye didn't work anymore. Right. Um, which that that was sort of one of the biggest like externalities of doing this project of like I was sort of unwittingly committing myself to maintaining this thing that I didn't had no idea how it was going to evolve. I didn't even know that it would exist when I started the project. It was just like, okay, you want to do this? We're going to do it this way now. That's how the web is going to work now. You've got to deal with it. Um, what was your goal at this point? Were you trying to support only the latest version of the WebSocket standard, or were you trying to support, I don't know what the negotiation is like, but you, are you able to support like all possible standards? Are they distinguishable? You, they are distinguishable. Um, they... At some point during the thing that led up to the RFC, they put in an explicit version header. Okay. But even before they did that, you could tell based on other properties of the headers which one you were dealing with. Um, so so did, did you end up with one of these horrendous grids of like all of the different versions? It's not so much versions? a grid. Like really, like nowadays, or the, like in terms of stuff that actually got put into browsers, like there are things that tracked every little draft of the RFC that, that, that came out. But in terms of what actually got put into browsers, you really only had to support three things there was the the original uh what's called draft 75 that uh that went into chrome there was draft 76 which was like that but with a different handshake um and then there was um a series of things that led up to the rfc that by the time they actually got put into browsers were sort of mostly stable ish um by the time it, that stuff went into browsers it had stopped radically changing the framing format right so um it's not so much a grid as, as just there are sort of basically three backends to this. And you can support all of them on the same server, and okay. Faye still does. Draft Draft75 really doesn't get used anymore. Draft76 is still, if anyone's still running Safari 5, or actually PhantomJS, I think, is still running this. Um, it's still around a little bit, but most stuff is on the RFC now. And just to emphasise how much effort this involved... Should just I'm just trying reminding myself that you were do, you were doing this you were doing this for two for an implementation that was written in JavaScript that runs on Node and also for an implementation that's written in Ruby that runs in Event Machine, right? Yeah. Uh, did you keep those two things like in perfect sync? Like every every time you went and updated the WebSocket implementation, you were doing it twice. Um. Yeah. Basically, this is another way I didn't realize how much work I was making <laughs> for myself. Um. Yeah. It was just because of it was originally a Ruby project. And I needed to do Ruby stuff with it, but I also ported it to Node, and people were using that. Right. It was a sort of, yeah, I've got to maintain both things now. Um, and, yeah, I get I, I get very guilty about not maintaining stuff, and there's a lot of stuff that I've done that is really badly maintained. It's just that Faye has the most uh, sort of users and attention and people relying on it, so it's what gets my attention. Right. Um, 
And then, um, am I right that latterly you broke out? So at least initially, this stuff was all just baked into Faye, right? But then you, yeah. I, I, as far as I understand it, so Faye is a Faye has its own like GitHub user, right? You have yeah. this, this has produced enough software that you have like a, a Faye user GitHub.com/slash/Faye, and then right. there are a whole bunch of repositories there. And the WebSocket stuff is broken out into like a Faye WebSocket library in Ruby and Node versions. Yeah, and then those depend on a WebSocket driver library in both Ruby and Node versions. I mean, I see, I, I gather that the WebSocket driver stuff is just uh, just a just an implementation of the you know the wire protocol yeah exactly um, without anything on top of it and then i guess the the fay websocket stuff is the, the the interface between um it's actually with the the fact that it's called fay websocket it tends to trick a lot of people because what it really means is it means it's a websocket library that was extracted from fay oh all right okay it is just so there's yeah it was a sort of sequence of extracting things first the um it was inside of Faye. It was always done in a, in a pretty modular way, um, but yeah, the first bit of extraction was that I broke out this thing called Faye WebSocket, which was just this thing for handling, doing WebSocket handling for Rack and for Node. So if I wanted to write a Rack app that had WebSocket support, I'd use Faye WebSocket to do that. Exactly, um, and that was based on, um, but th yeah, that made certain assumptions about how you're doing I/O. So on. Uh, Ruby, it assumed you wanted to do I/O with Event Machine, right. and you were using an Event Machine-based web server, um, which um, over time became more and more problematic. Because well, uh, Thin's been very popular for a long time. Um, it started getting sort of uh, supplanted a little bit by stuff like Puma, which isn't based on Event Machine. Yeah, and um, uh, yeah, so the thing that tri triggered the sort of second phase was that the uh, the guys that maintain Puma and uh, another project called Celluloid, which is an actor-based uh, concurrency and I/O framework, um, asked if they could take the just the protocol handling stuff out of Faye WebSocket and not take the Invent Machine-based I/O system. Um, so yeah, that was the sort of second bit of extraction of just taking all the all the protocol logic. And making it so that you could have a thing and you could attach it to any I.O. system you wanted and then you'd have a WebSocket and you didn't have to worry about how the protocol worked or anything like that. So, so that's what WebSocket driver does. Exactly. Right. And then Faye WebSocket is really just a thing that glues that to Event Machine. Right. Um, it's become very, very small. And then Faye itself sits on top of that and deals with all the, the buyer level stuff. Yeah, so then Faye, like, it uses that and it uses event source and it uses long polling and it implements the buyer protocol and all of that stuff. So... Um, yeah, Faye WebSocket is just one of the transport components that makes that up. Right. So this is quite a lot. We've talked about quite a lot of software here. So you kind of, I, I tried to, before we spoke today, I was sitting down, I was trying to create a sort of a partial map of like the <laughs> the, the Coglin verse of like all, <laughs> all of these pieces of software and how they related to each other. So yeah, so you kind of, it seems like Terminus is where you started. Terminus kind of triggered the creation of pathology, which triggered the creation of Canopy. Yes. Yeah, and that was that was just along the axis of XPath. Right. Um, and then separately, you kind of, Terminus triggered the creation of Fay, and then the subsequent kind of arrival of WebSockets ended up, you ended up writing all of this code, which meant that you ended up with the Fay WebSocket stuff, which sits on top of the WebSocket driver stuff. Yeah. So there's sort of quite a large collection of... Uh, is there anything I've missed out? I mean, I know there are a bunch of other peripheral things like the, the Redis integration and the cluster stuff, but I don't know I don't know whether you use those in anger or whether they're, whether they're on the critical path to just getting Terminus working in the way that... Um, the Redis stuff wasn't. That was... Uh, the, the thing that makes Fay a bit weird is that the reason I was writing it was to do sort of weird stuff with web browsers and 
uh, weird music projects rather than doing large-scale messaging things. So when people came along and said, we want to do large-scale messaging things, but you've given us this single-process Ruby messaging hub, uh, we need something better, then that's that's where the Redis stuff came in. It's sort of um, making the back-end sort of business logic bit of Fay pluggable so that... Um, you could, you know, run a whole cluster of face servers and, and distribute a load. Right. Um, and that's been quite fun because it's let, like, making that bit pluggable has meant that other people can write plugins. So um, uh, MySpace did their own sharded Redis backend um, that solved a bunch of problems that, that they were having, and they open sourced that. Um, and yeah, sort of, it's really nice to be able to take a bit of a system. And figure out the abstraction boundary well enough so you can just defer that problem to to other people. Right. Um, so because because I'm not the one who's doing these big large scale messaging deployments of it, it's really good to be able to offload solving that to people who are doing it and really know what the problems are, and then they can share that back with the community. Right. So at the end of this whole. I know, I know that this process is ongoing, but at least having got to the point where all of these pieces of software were implemented and working to your satisfaction, how much how much use are you getting out of Terminus these days, like having got it working? <laughs> Not very much. <laughs> um, this is the sort of weird thing is that I thought Terminus would be really useful and really it's only a handful of people that um, that, that, that care about it. There's orders of magnitude more people found Faye useful than right. found Terminus useful, which uh, I really didn't, expect because um yeah it started out being this really sort of hacky thing that didn't work very well i'm surprised that it became usable enough that people started you know using it in their companies and things right that's kind of that was a uh, a big surprise well that's really interesting to me that you kind of semi-accidentally have kind of mined this very rich vein of utility for people right that like just by just by going through this exercise of having some potentially you know, Terminus was not necessarily something that you had like a burning need for, but you just felt like you wanted to make either for fun or for like a small amount of use. Yeah. Um, but just by kind of pulling on that thread, you've kind of all of the all of the rest of this stuff has come out, and you've kind of just by following your own needs, you've kind of uncovered this right. really rich area. And yeah, I mean, I you know I know a lot of people who use Fay. I use Fay, as you know. <laughs> like it seems like a really popular from the outside. It seems like it's the most used thing that you've made is that uh, uh, yeah absolutely right um it's certainly uh if um you know if i'm at a conference or, or whatever that's what i introduce myself as as, as working on because it's what people tend to have heard of right and i mean i don't want to get too much into any more of this stuff that's a fascinating story and i would, <laughs> I would love to hear more of the stories but i kind of i think there are other stories that have a similar kind of character right like in in my mind you are characterized by this desire to but by a lack of hesitation in going out and just making your own thing, right? So you've got like you've got JS test, right? Um, and you've got like I guess JS class and JS build are kind of tied into that, and you've got uh, Wake for doing the kind of makey stuff. Like th those are all those all form like a, a cluster in my mental model of the right. Coglin verse, right? <laughs> I, I don't 100% understand. Okay, do you have a map of this? Because I'm, I'm kind of terrified. <laughs> that does need to be. Or, and, and, then, and then there's a separate constellation, which is like your scheme implementations or your your, right. Lisp, your Lisp implementations, right? So you had like Cargo uh, in JavaScript and Heist in Ruby. Is that, yeah. 
Um, and then various other bits. I remember you talking about Primer, the your caching thing for Rails app. Yeah, uh, that, was, that was a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, you went sub- subsequently completely disowned that idea. But at the time, you know, it seemed cool. Um, that was totally one of those things where I was just naive enough to think it was a good idea and went and talked about it. Yeah. And then uh, learned a bit more and discovered it was a terrible idea. Uh, but, you know, is that, that's doing that sort of stuff is educational. Right. And you were, you've been talking, not recently actually, but in the last year, you were talking about coping, the templating language that you were playing around with. Yeah, that was sort of a like, conference day okay. hack right. thing. Um, that's still sort of yeah an experiment that I show to people occasionally and ask if it's any use. Right, um, so I, th- I think this is sort of more generally something that I was interested in asking you about, is just this, the, the way that it seems that you do a lot of your thinking like in public and on GitHub. Right. And... And like when you look at the list of your repositories on GitHub, there's there's kind of a power law of like you know there's Fay or not that well they're not even on your repository but you know there's yeah. of the stuff you're responsible for on GitHub there's Fay and all of its attendant projects and then there's the stuff under under Jay Coglin on GitHub and there are a few a few like big ticket items in there and then there's this really long tail of just like stuff that's like you know they've got two commits in right. and like no read me and there's like you know like a, a a bot that does a thing or something there's just like lots and lots of stuff there and it it gives me the impression at least that you're someone who when you start thinking about something your mechanism for doing that may well involve like hacking on some software to do it yeah. and and then your your MO for hacking on that software is that you're just going to put it in public you know I don't know if you know I don't know to what extent you get excited about coming up with a good name for it and making sure you've got like the gem name or the npm uh, name or whatever it is like I actually actually banned myself from naming uh, projects at Songkick <laughs> because I'm so bad at it but like to what extent <laughs> it, it it sounds as though this is uh, an an integral part of your process for like for figuring stuff out right like so so the thing with primer which very briefly was involved you were trying to solve the hard problem of cache invalidation, right? Yeah. Given that you're you're abdicating responsibility for the hard problem of naming, you thought you would focus <laughs> on the focus right. on the on the cache invalidation. Um, and yeah, the, I remember when you were speaking about it because uh, you were you were roughly you were doing like runtime instrumentation of Active Record instances to like try and figure out when they had changed and right. Um, and it was an intriguing idea. Um, and it's the kind of thing that, like, if I'd had that idea down the pub, I would have, like, nodded to myself for a minute, and then I probably would have not gone anywhere with it, but you have, you know, you you at least worked through it to the extent that you built a piece of software, and then you went and spoke about it in public, and, like, it seems like it was maybe through, you maybe required that whole process of doing all of that work to to even figure out whether or not you liked it or not. Um, yeah, sort of. Like, looking back, that's the sort of problem that should really have been done. That's one of the, the, the very small set of problems for which the right answer is do a new language. Right. Um, because, yeah, it was it was this, this really sort of hacky thing where it would it would try and infer and record how your templates depended on your data so that when your data changed, it could invalidate your caches. Um, and it was, it was really bad, and the way that it did that involved storing a huge amount of, of metadata that was just completely ridiculous. Um, and if you wanted to do it properly, you would have to build a, a system that had that baked in, um, which various other other people have done. Um, it sort of probably has more in common with if you look at the sort of data binding in JavaScript frameworks these days. The sort of the notion that your your view your view automatically updates when the when the data changes. I was trying to do that, but for a sort of server side Rails thing, right? Which is it doesn't really work as well there, just because of the volume of storage you need to do. So I kind of. 
I've kind of hypothesized an answer to the question already, but I wanted to ask you explicitly, like, wh- why do you, why do you do this? Like, why do you? I, I'm, this isn't an intervention. It's just like, why do you, why do you live your life in this way? Like, is this so? The kind of stuff that you did for, and you, you've partially answered this question in what you said about the the various stuff that spun off from Terminus. But like, do you feel like the production of all of this software is done primarily out of? actual necessity or is it primarily out of curiosity i mean it sounds like for example the reason why you wrote canopy was just because was primarily because you were interested if, if you had not been interested you probably just would have used peg.js right um yeah it was it was a kind of um necessity in terms of i wanted to use it in order to do something else rather than just doing it for its own sake plus um being um I wouldn't say frustrated, just having some different design ideas than the existing tools that were available. Um, like, for example, like one, one thing that's in there is that it, uh, a lot of parser generator things, they let you put code in line in the grammar right. for, for saying how the different modes should behave. Um, I've always disliked that. I've always kept the, the, codes, the grammar in one file and the code in another file and had some syntax for how, how you link them. Um, Partly because I've just always found that easier to maintain, but also it's sort of I've had an idea on the back burner. Like doing it that way means that I could actually uh, quite easily write another some other backends for Canopy that generated other languages. So right now it only generates JavaScript, but you could quite easily make it generate Python or Ruby or Java. Or, right. Um, because there's no there's no there's programming no, language no, in line with the exactly. I um, remember the first time I saw Treetop. Um, that I saw the syntax for Treetop. I was confused about that. Because right. as, as someone who was interested in parsing already, when I saw the the inline Ruby code inside the grammar, my first thought was, how does the how does the parser for this for this grammar language work? Because yeah. I think I think in Treetop, when you want to introduce a piece of uh, I can't remember what they call them, semantic actions or whatever yeah. inside the inside the grammar, you have say an opening curly brace, and then you have like some yeah. some Ruby, and then a closing curly brace. And the immediate question that occurred to me was, how do you know? How do you know when you reach the closing curly brace? Because the Ruby's going to have curly braces in it, yeah. and some of them are going to be inside string literals. And like, how do you know? And and the answer in Treetop is it just counts how many yeah. open opening and closing curly braces it sees. It doesn't yeah. know about Ruby, right? But it, well, it at least at least needs to know enough about Ruby that Ruby's use of curly braces requires balancing, right? Um, which means that if you've got that assumption, you can just say, yeah, let's just count balanced. Uh, braces, that's fine. But if your Ruby code is set, if your Ruby code is just puts a literal string with a closing curly brace in it, then, then you're, it you're, you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can escape it, or maybe it does something like you know, in Make, you have to do the two dollar signs because you don't want like no, this isn't a Make dollar sign. This is a Bash dollar sign. Right. But this obviously annoyed you sufficiently that you felt. So maybe maybe my choice. Oh, it, of... it wasn't so much annoyed as as being like I have this other idea and I feel like I might just about understand enough to be able to have a go at doing it. So that pretty much falls under curiosity, right? Yeah. It's like you. It's not so. I I made a joke at the beginning about you just being angry and ch- channeling <laughs> your anger into open source, but I think it's it's it feels like it's slightly more slightly more virtuous than that in that like you're actually just interested in how things might be done and when you can see something like that where an opportunity has been has gone unexploited you're kind of interested to see how that might work out yeah regardless of how much of your life it might consume in the process uh yeah i wouldn't say regardless i'm like a (laughs) bit i'm much more cautious certainly about announcing and releasing stuff these days because um of you know now i know what actually being a maintainer means in terms of time right I can't take on a lot more of those commitments. So that, um, that that reminds me of as you were talking about Faye, for example. There was it felt like there was a point where 
So all of these things, as, as uh, evidenced by your GitHub account, it seems like these things start life as like something for you. Like you, you're hacking on something locally, you quite quickly decide you're going to push it up to GitHub just so you've got like an offsite backup or whatever, like for yeah. whatever reason, so you can give it a cool name. And then it's up, <laughs> it's up on GitHub. But then at some point, some of your projects kind of go through this phase transition where they stop being something primarily for you and you start thinking them as being something for other people. Yeah. And this is one of the things I think is very impressive about the projects where you've made that transition is that you're very conscientious about like making sure that your stuff is well documented. Um, and there are some other things that we should also talk about, other properties that your software has, but primarily in terms of like presenting it to the world, making sure you're not just slapping in a half-finished readme on the GitHub repo. You're like, yeah, you have a nice subdomain on jcoglan.com and you go to the trouble of like designing a nice <laughs> set of pages and you yeah. write narrative documentation and stuff. And like, I wonder, oh, what is it that makes things? How do you know when something is sort of tipped over into that state where you're like, oh god, time for a new subdomain? Um, I think some of it comes down to. Well, there's there's a bunch of reasons why it could happen. Either I've I've have some indication that it's something other people want. Um, because people are already using it, or um, no, it's be, or that like it's it's a thing where you see people being frustrated by a certain thing, and you think you might have the answer to it. Right. Um, which most of the time you don't, but that's fine. Um, I think there's sort of a, another angle to it, which this sort of templating stuff that you brought up earlier. Um, yeah, I've got this sort of experimental project called uh, Coping, which is like a type-safe templating library. So, for example, if you've got an HTML template and uh, you've got a thing that drops a value into a an HTML attribute, um, the templating library knows how that should be encoded when you drop it in. So in, in Rails, when you drop stuff into a template, it automatically gets HTML encoded. Um, this system can do more context-aware encoding of stuff. So um, it will, if you're dropping something into a query string, it will CGI encode it. If it's into HTML, it will HTML encode it. And it will even do that in different places in the same template. It will know, it understands the, the sort of grammatical structure of what you're doing, and it knows how things should be um, composed together. Um, that was... That sort of project is is more sort of, I don't know. I guess, um, uh, like, like argument by programming right. thing where you're you're sort of going, well, we've got this big problem, which is that encoding stuff is hard and security is hard, and doing all that stuff correctly is really really hard to explain. You know, you see like code bases that have someone's written a URL. Uh, a URL builder that has ampersand AMP semicolon in it but doesn't CGI encode the stuff that's being dropped into the parameters right? because people sort of view source on web pages and you can't see the layers of language involved in how that works and so you don't know what to attribute different symbols to um, so it's sort of trying to make a thing that makes it easy to do the right thing even if you don't fully understand what the problem is, it's sort of going okay there's this problem with web development uh, I haven't seen any good solutions to it. Here's here's an idea. Is it any good? Um, yeah, that's that's sort of not so much going. Here is packaged finished stuff. It's going like, what if you could do this? And here's a here's a demo. So as of right now, coping hasn't made that transition from a thing that you made for your own satisfaction no, to like something that other people are using. It's right? not on Ruby Gems. It's not been, like there's no packaging. It's sort of minimally documented 
as in the readme is like you can do that it's not here's everything you can do with this is like here's one example of a thing you can do with it right and um, w- what what would need to happen for it to make that magic transition to get like coping.jcoglin.com i think people would like have to show enough interest in it it's sort of I've shown it to a few people who are into sort of formal languages and security and stuff and had some... Like I've used it to have interesting conversations about that stuff. Like, right. when I've shown it to some people, they've said, oh, it shouldn't really be a templating language. It should actually be a thing that treats all these things as data structures and encourages people to treat things like HTML documents and URLs and SQL queries and JavaScript as data structures. Right. Um, and... There's a point there, but it's also like how how do you make this stuff, uh, like how do you package a good idea in a way that makes it so easy that people will want to use it over what they are, um, you know, ERB has, you know, spoiled people with convenience about like you just drop a string in here, that's great. Yeah. Um, if you want to do something, like if if you're trying to put forward another alternative. You know, you're fighting a usability competition with ERB, yeah. which ERB is really easy to use, but very hard to use correctly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can do a system that go, hey, let's all become Haskell programmers and learn <laughs> how to compose stuff properly. Right. Or you can try and sort of meet people where they are, and go, here's this thing that looks mostly like what you're doing, but it's better. Right. Um, and so it's that like trying to trade off like correctness versus what should the right interface be that makes people feel comfortable using it. Yeah. That leads me into another thing I wanted to ask you about, which was sort of, I suppose, generally about your attitudes as a maintainer of open source software. I mean, I, in my mind, I characterize you as a relatively conservative maintainer in as yeah. much as you, you seem to say no a lot more than you say yes to things. And even when you are saying yes to things, it's after quite a lot of, quite a lot of, not pain necessarily, but like you, you're, you're certainly not... Um, you know, you're not one of these people who just wants to shovel as much stuff as possible into your software, and may- right. may- maybe that's related to your to, to the idea you just explained about sort of software as argument. Like, if you if you see the pieces of software that you make as being, you know, I guess primarily it's software, and people can use it to get stuff done. But like the reason why you have constructed it as is as an expression of an idea that you have. Mm. It's it it seems to make sense that you're not necessarily going to want other people's or even your own whims to kind of pollute the clarity of... And I, I mean, quite a lot of the time I've seen you say to people, like, well, that's a great idea. Like, you should do that, you know, as a plug-in or as a different piece of software or something yeah. just because it doesn't align exactly with what you're with what you're trying to do with whatever the piece of software is. And I'm also aware that you have opinions on things like API stability and API design and just generally that. It reminds me, I wrote down that you did some tweets uh, a few months ago, uh, which I found sufficiently interesting that I wrote them down. You said, web software is built by the smart and young and its pace of change privileges the mentally agile. This includes both consumer software and dev tools. Change spends people's time. Like that, that sounds like something that quite a conservative maintainer would say. Um, how how do you handle like you obviously the stuff that you've worked on has changed over time yeah uh, and you are still as far as I can tell actively maintaining a lot of this stuff certainly Faye um, how do you how do you manage that process and like how how does your own attitude towards your own software kind of shape you know how something like Faye changes over time um, well it's mostly uh, influenced by what I find painful using 
other stuff. Um, so, um, yeah, I think when you when you describe me as conservative, the sort of core of that is that I really value stability. Um, like, uh, you know, there's that article about the sort of um, uh, like the worse is better school of design versus the uh, it must be correct school of design. I'm yeah. sort of more on the latter end of that spectrum. Like to me, like it's like I will put up with any amount of complexity in the implementation to make sure that the that the interface is um, is right. Um, and yeah, that that mostly comes from being frustrated by you know having spent um, and was it like seven years now doing doing Ruby and um, sort of living in the Ruby ecosystem for that much time. Like none of the software that I use looks anything like it did when I started using it, and there are good reasons for that and there are bad reasons for that. Um, and the thing that sort of most concerns me is like when like stuff that gets changed because someone thought that that's like the new way is how it should have been done in the first place and it's obviously better, um, but it doesn't really give um, it doesn't give anyone any real new capabilities or power. It doesn't really fix any mistakes, um, and it breaks their existing software. So, right. um, to me, the sort of canonical example of that is the Ruby one nine hash syntax. Um, which a lot of people are like, oh, it's obviously better. Um, but it doesn't let you write programs that you couldn't write before. Right. It doesn't fix any mistakes that anyone was making before. And it means that if someone uses that syntax, that program now won't run on an older thing. It's kind of, it's purely an aesthetic change, um, which um, the aesthetics of code are important. And it's important to have stuff that that's readable. But if you have a thing that's already been shipped, like making those tiny little sort of fussy aesthetic changes to it, to me never seems really worth it. If you're if you're going to change something, um, you'd better be giving me a lot more power or preventing me making significant mistakes. Because when you change stuff, you're spending, uh, or to put it the other way, when I change stuff. If you're, as a maintainer, when you change stuff, you're spending people's time. When you break up, when you break people's software, you're spending their time, and you don't know what kind of context that might be in. You know, if you are, um, I don't know, like the, you don't know how much how costly people's time is, and uh, in uh, a lot of cases, it's a lot more costly than you than you realize. I mean, just in terms of companies have to pay people to do this stuff, right? You know, people get locked into, uh, you know, huge like legacy problems where they can't upgrade things, and now they've got like massive technical debt that that you know slows entire companies down. Um, like keeping software in a state where people can upgrade it easily without having to spend a lot of their own time, to me, is is really valuable. Um, and if you if you make software such that you people can't do that easily, I don't think you're you're helping them. You're going, okay, I made this tool and you've adopted it and you've got utility out of it and, and now you're sort of dependent on it. Um, and uh, now I'm going to make that dependency very costly for you. Right. Um, versus, um, probably not explaining this very well, but if you, yeah, if it's, if it, if it's, if it's unstable, 
um, you've then got someone has a bunch of code that's coupled to that, and now that code is really costly and it's a liability. Right. And I really don't like doing that to people. You don't want that um, to be your fault. Well, I don't. I don't like it when people do that to me. <laughs> right. And so, like, therefore, I try not to do it to other people. It reminds me more generally of the problem of the the kind of instinctive tendency of developers to prioritize the concerns of developers. Like, I mean, I think that right. I think your Ruby hash syntax example is a great is a great example of that. Like, you are you're more concerned as the author of some library or as the creator of Ruby or whatever it is, you've whether rightly or wrongly in that specific case, but in general, yeah. this idea of saying there's something that I there's something that I as a developer am concerned about, whether it's aesthetics or the na you know the, the the names of things in my API or whether or not I'm using the new hotness or whatever it is, yeah. and so I'm going to make that my focus and like not necessarily concentrating on when you do this cool or hot or new thing, like what the what the knock-on effect is going to be on the people, whether they're other developers or like regular people who are using your software. Mm. Um, and that seems to be relatively endemic. Like a lot of the things that I see you complaining about in the world generally are, are sort of instances of that problem, right? Um, yeah, they're kind of... Um, I think I just see... Um, I don't mean to sort of write this argument off entirely because it is um, it is kind of valid, but I'll, like I tend to discount very heavily any argument that's based on what makes uh, programmers happy. It's not that I you know I like using tools that I like using. Right. Um, I like stuff that makes it easy for me to do my job. Um, but an argument about making developers happy can never win over an argument about keeping users happy. Um, so stuff like, um, I'm going to build this thing with some JavaScript front-end framework that doesn't work without JavaScript. That's an argument that makes the the programmer happy, um, but doesn't um, like doesn't consider, you know, a certain class of users who are not going to be able to use your stuff. Um, it's the same sort of wasting people's time thing. If you make um, like, there's a lot of Websites that use JavaScript that um, like I can never get them to load on a mobile phone because it's too slow. Right. And you could be sitting, I don't know, you're like, uh, I don't know, you're seeing your like, uh, uh, you're seeing your lawyer or something, and you can't get the inf some. You need some bit of information. It's taking forever. Like that amount of time that it's taking for you to get the information is costing the user. Like I know it's sort of a, like a really niche problem, but like people's time is costly. Yes. Um, and making stuff that is either inaccessible or very lengthy to get hold of when you had plenty of options to make that not the case, um, I don't find that acceptable. Um, there's a really good article that came out this week from, from GDS explaining like the impact of how many people don't run JavaScript when they look at GDS uh, at gov.uk. Right. And if you think of it in terms of, like the, their figure was like one in 93 people Yes. Um, isn't running JavaScript. And if you think of it in terms of if you make a tool that if government used it, it would disenfranchise one in 93 people from being able to access government information. Like, to me, that's that's a sort of, like, much stronger... I know, like, it brings the point home. Like, you can't... Because a lot of people make the argument of, like, I'll just, you know, do whatever satisfies 95% of, of, of the users. But there are, some, there are some problems where, like, 95% isn't good enough. If right. you cut anyone out... Um, like government is an ob obvious example of that, but I think more more generally, um, the effect of all these private businesses going 
keep the 95% happy is that there are a set of people who are just cut out from the marketplace entirely. Yeah, It's one of those sort of things of like, um, all of those businesses are making the right decisions in terms of their interests. It's too costly. It's not a good business decision for them to spend loads of money supporting whatever it is they need to do to make this possible. But the net effect of that is to, you know, cut a certain set of people out of being able to use any of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure that I have, like, a great answer to that beyond, I don't know, smash capitalism. <laughs> but <laughs> That'll do. <laughs> well, so it sounds like you have a fairly um, clear-cut idea of... So, for example, it sounds like you're weighing on on the on the side of progressive enhancement, right? You would you would rather use a website that that works without JavaScript, as you say, as as Pete uh, Hurley's blog post said, it's not just people, it's not just like neckbeards who have disabled JavaScript. Like yeah. those aren't the only people you're talking about. And yeah. I think there's a tendency to imagine that 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 those are the people you're yeah. excluding. But which that's... is then whenever I bring this up on on Twitter, you get like, well, people people say to me, oh, people shouldn't disable it. If they disable it, they deserve it. It's just like okay this is not this is just people you know out who don't live in big cities who have terrible mobile reception right like, they just cannot use your website um i would say that's necessarily an argument i mean i do broadly support pro- uh, progressive enhancement um but it's not so much that i'm trying to make an argument against javascript per se it's an argument about making stuff that takes too long to deliver to people right um like i was at uh, .rb last week and um uh, Steve Kladnick mentioned that there's sort of work underway to take stuff like Ember and make it be more part of the browser so that and if you do that it means that sites have to download way less stuff in order to make the website work and we're you know looking at frameworks like um, you know stuff like Hoodie that lets you send an email from the client side like that's right. a lot of uh, you've at least got to send all your templates um, because you're putting no code on the server under that model. So all of your templating, all of your logic, absolutely everything that defines how your software works has to be sent to the user so it can be executed. Yeah. Um, and it's not that that's... I'm, I'm not saying that's absolutely wrong. I'm saying that you have to keep in mind delivery times. And like So, yeah, rather than it being a sort of anti-JavaScript argument, it's a kind of how can we, how can we change stuff so that we can make these nice fancy websites that that uh, that are nice to use, um, but they're still like actually delivered quickly to people. So you'd be quite happy in a world where where those you know apps <laughs> rather than sites. You know well, we're we're using apps that are hosted on the web, and they are you know whether it's via whether it's like Ember or Angular or whatever kind of whatever strategy you use to do that stuff you you would fundamentally be happy with that as long as you you know as long as it works fine when you're on your mobile phone yeah you're like, not fundamentally opposed to that model of the web it's just that there are currently specific operational problems with it that need to be addressed um yeah it's just it's really a question about where the line gets drawn there's currently a bunch of functionality that's baked into browsers that are expressed in html tags we have html tags that say make basically make the browser do this and all of the code that makes that happen is in the browser and you don't need to download it right then anything anything above that you need to send javascript to people um but if there are things that are being really commonly done in web apps um that were baked into the browser you know so that they became effectively tags or i don't know like built-in javascript functions or whatever they are um 
that problem, which, like you say, it's not really a question of, of some people do have JavaScript disabled, and I, you know, like those people need to be catered for. Um, but there is a much bigger chunk of the I'm not running JavaScript set of people, which is just the people don't receive all of your app's code. Right. Um, so if the if what the app does can be expressed in a smaller amount of data, right? Because more of it is baked into what, how browsers work, um, then that is a possible solution to that problem. Yeah. But yeah, the way the way things are today, that tends to come out of my mouth as being anti JavaScript sentiment. Right. And then maybe once that problem is solved, we can start addressing the problem of you not having received all of the website's fonts. <laughs> well... <laughs> and so on. Yeah. So, so just to finish up... Um, we've been talking for a long time now, but you're sort of talking about JavaScript quite a lot, and it seems like you have kind of. A, I'm, I'm intrigued by the sort of love-hate relationship that you have with JavaScript, because on the one hand, your arguably most successful project is probably well, so certainly on the client side is is all almost entirely used by JavaScript. I know there's a Ruby client for Fay, right? But surely 99% of people who are using it are running in running it's the JavaScript for websites, in yeah. browser, and then. I would guess that probably the majority of those people are using Node on the server side if they're interested in WebSockets in the first place. So, like, you're a big deal to JavaScript programmers, and you do end up writing a lot of JavaScript, but at the same time, you do have this kind of moderate antipathy towards possibly not JavaScript itself, but some of the ways in which it's used and, and so yeah. on. Um, but, you know, you're... So, I know that right now you're writing a book about JavaScript testing. Yeah. Um, what... I don't know anything about JavaScript testing. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not really a JavaScript programmer, although I do end up writing a lot of it. I'm not a proper JavaScript programmer like what you are. Um, I think there's there's a lot of people who identify that way. Right. I, I have found it... Uh, this is not in any way a criticism of the JavaScript testing landscape because I just haven't invested any effort. But it seems that like with Ruby, for example, there is... I don't want to say there's a broad consensus because I know there isn't a broad <laughs> consensus, but there are at least a couple of sizable camps of how you're supposed to do testing in Ruby. Sure. And all the only decision that you have to make if you, if you even want to make one is just which of those camps to align yourself with. And then there's pretty much a golden path that you can just follow. And as long as you do what it says in the, I'll name no names, the X book and the Y book, then you're good, right? And it, as someone who is not inside the JavaScript community, it feels to me as though that JavaScript hasn't quite reached that point yet. Like I, it, it, To me, it feels like there is a huge diversity of options in terms of how you're going to test your... Like, even in JS test, yeah. you've got this kind of laundry list of, like, here are all the places we support running your tests. Yeah. Like, you can run them in all these different browsers and all of these headless browsers, and you can run them in this kind of Mongo console and run them, you know, uh, run them in, on VA or in Node or whatever. So, like, there's a lot of... I guess just by the nature of the language, it's it's much more widely distributed. It, it yeah. runs on many Which more... Which is, it has a lot more users. Right. Um, and therefore, there are a lot more tools get built for it. And it's... Yeah, I can I can certainly see why if, if you're not someone who thinks of themselves as, like, quote-unquote, a real JavaScript programmer, which I think describes a huge amount of, of people doing professional web development, um, you're not you know, your attention is not on what's happening in JavaScript land all the time. 
all of that stuff is sort of a bit of a, a, a grey blur and not very well defined. And it certainly was to me before I actually went and looked at all these test runners and how they actually worked and tried to integrate with them. Right. Um, it's... The frustrating thing about it to me is that it's like there are lots of tools that work just fine, um, but there's also quite a lot of sort of obfuscation. Like it's um, it's really easy, as in it's not much typing, um, to make uh, to go and get Jasmine or Mocha or QUnit or whatever you want, one of the popular ones. Um, make a web page, put it on there, and write some tests and run them, and you've got a web page that runs your tests. Right. Um, there is, however, I've sort of found this more in, in, in Rubyland that it, it sort of gets obfuscated. So people make gems that say, okay, we're going to make a thing that lets you test your Sinatra app with Jasmine on Phantom. And they'll make a gem that like, ties those things together. Right. And that, to me, is sort of... Um, it's not that that isn't a useful thing to do, but the way in which it's packaged is sort of obfuscatory. Right. Um, like rather than going, okay, you've got some tests. Like I always start from the position of make a web page with some tests on it, right. and then the second step is how do you make those run on Phantom or how do you make them run on your web server? Mm -hmm. Like it's the sort of uh, the same approach that I take to doing a lot of, of Ruby stuff is like make it work on its own, then make it work on Sinatra, then make it work on Rails, rather than taking all the Rails assumptions and making them in at, at the start, um, and. Yeah, so because of the these things tend to obfuscate stuff, they hide stuff like how does the page, how does the test page get constructed? If you want to put markup in there, how do you do that? Right. It, you, do you you know some things add in interfaces that let you load files off disk, and then that's means that you can't run that code in the browser because there's no way to do that in the browser. So you get right. coupled to that testing platform, and you can't take those tests and run them somewhere else. And the thing is, there are a lot of useful places to run your tests. There are, you know, various sort of CI servers, you like TestSwarm, uh, Buster, a uh, whole class of things like that that will just sort of automatically run your tests in loads of browsers. If you don't start from the standpoint of just have a static web page that runs some tests, using those things becomes much harder. If you become reliant on server-side software, right, um, and you know, booting a server process, integrating with those things becomes harder. If you're relying on a file system API that this thing somehow magically springs into life, that's not going to be available in this other ecosystem. So, um, yeah, it's not that like we've we've got enough tools. Um, they're just like there isn't enough thought put into how they uh, compose, um, and. Or like there are there are some things that are presented so that you can't see how to compose them if you change your mind about something. Right. Because the thing is, there are a lot of these these test runners have good APIs for like if you have a, a test framework, like Jasmine has a thing uh, where you can write a reporter plugin that will just emit test results however you want, and you can use that to make it report the results to any of these test runner frameworks. Like you can do that glue. It's just that there's a lot of projects that sort of go, okay, I've done the glue, but now I'm going to package all of it into this one blob. Right. And that means people can't really see how it works, so they find it confusing. So in this in this book you're writing, is this are you writing this primarily to like evangelize this a specific approach to doing JavaScript testing? Is that kind of is that your goal or are you just trying to are you just surveying the existing landscape? I mean is it is this is this you kind of trying to convince the world, persuading through text rather than software, like making an argument that testing should be done in a particular way? Like what are you um, hoping to synthesize by writing all of this stuff down? 
I wouldn't say that the book is that because the book isn't really about tools. The book is more about use cases. Like, okay. how do I test a node app that talks to a database? How do I test strings? Oh, okay. How do I test something that uses local storage? All right. It's sort of example based, like partly because it's like you say there are there are all these programmers that say I'm not a JavaScript programmer, but they write loads of JavaScript because right. they sort of have to, um, and it's primarily. Um, supposed to be a sort of cookbook for those sorts of people. Right. Um, so yeah, it doesn't it doesn't it I'm trying to um you know beyond just here's how you set up the thing we're going to use for the book. I don't really go into this tool versus that tool versus because I just like setting up tools is sort of um like a it's sort of boring and not very instructive. It's just like here's this arbitrary text you have to write to make this thing work. Um, it doesn't go into like I, I want to focus much more on the principles of like, you know, how do you apply things like assertions and stubs and mocks to these various problems? Like, what are the sort of timeless testing principles um, about how you construct code and tests, and how then how do you apply that stuff to JavaScript type problems? Because um, the tools like the tools are all documented. You can pick whatever tool you want. Um, like they've got docu documentation. If you know how to do testing you'll find picking up any of these tools pretty easy. Um, I'd say in terms of like, you know, code as argument, probably JS test is more as in the test framework that I use. Yeah. And that, wrote and wrote. Right. Um, <laughs> that is more in that vein, as in it it is a testing framework that doesn't try to hide things from you. It tries to you know, the documentation explains to you how to integrate it with anything you want. Right. And it's designed to be able to do that. Um, it's designed to just assume that you have a web page, and then if you have a web page, you can run it on Phantom. Is that sort of making minimal assumptions, not trying to create a big server-based framework? Just going basically here's it like treat it more as a library than a framework. Like here's this thing, you run it like this. If you want to run it on this other platform, here's how you do that. Here's how you make it talk to some other stuff. Um, so yeah, that's more of it, like that. The way that that is constructed is 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 more in line of your your sort of code, coder's argument right. idea. Um, yeah, the book tries to stay away from tooling as much as possible. But it's good that you're. It sounds like you're kind of sneaking the coder's argument in, kind of well, under, under the radar as part of the as part of the cookbook. You'll also have to pick up all of these. All of these arguments will be absorbed by osmosis as you are doing. Possibly. This. I mean, like some of that stuff. Like it's something that I do tell to people when I'm teaching them how to do this stuff. Is like start start with a web page. Yeah. Like start with a thing you can just load in your browser because, yeah, there are a lot of good tools for running this stuff, and the more, the 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 more your stuff. Is just based on static files. Mm -hmm. The easier it is to do stuff like put it in your CI system, right? Um, without coupling to a lot of other complicated dependencies. So there, there are bits of that that are sort of I think are just general good advice that you can apply whatever tools you're using. Right. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, when's the book going to be done? <laughs> when you finish building your building a tool chain to generate e like Mobi and EPUB files, presumably. Uh, that's fine. I've got yeah. I've said the other day I don't have a book yet but I have a really fun make file I can sell you um, <laughs> well that that doesn't come as a massive surprise to me that you have ended up in that situation but it's fine no I'm uh, it's like now um, yeah I, uh, so since uh, leaving Songkick last month I've taken a bit of time off gone on holiday but now uh, doing the book is my full time job for a bit right so um, yeah making steady progress um, hopefully out by the end of the year if I get my act together um, 
but yeah, I'm sort of being at once discouraged by people who've written PhDs and tell me how hard writing is and encouraged by people I know who've written books in a week. Right. And somewhere in between those extremes is hopefully what's going to happen. Cool. Well, uh, good luck with it. I feel like I should let you get back to it, given that it is your <laughs> full-time job now. Um, but thanks very much for coming and talking to me. Oh, thank you for having me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Um, thanks very much. Thank you.